In today's show, we're really going to explore the difference between rondos and position games. Now, most coaches have rondos and position games as the same thing. So if you think of a very popular type of positional game, which would be a 4v4 plus 3, that's actually not a rondo. It's a position game according to the Barcelona methodology. So today we're going to go into the difference between the rondos and uh, positional games. I'll obviously discuss this weekend's games and I really want to talk about Ontario soccer because there's some spicy stuff happening and I'm not one of those people that says I told you so but I'm going to say it. I told you so. Prepare for a soccer coaching revolution. Come with me on a journey to discover the latest methods, techniques, and tactics that will transform you into a more effective coach, player, or soccer parent. Whether you're a seasoned coach or a beginner, growth never stops. I'm Sagab Rabinovich, and this is Soccer Coaching Mastermind. Well, I hope you had a great weekend with your teams. We had our 2013, our 2012, 2011, and our 2010s playing this weekend. So uh, from U11 all the way to U14. And pretty consistently, I think this year, our 2012s have performed at a very high level. They're a team that's kind of been able to put everything together. And that makes sense. I've had most of those players since they were nine years old. So the majority of that team is really really good uh the 2013s 2011s and 2010s while we do have some players that have been with us for a long time there's a lot of new players in those teams so it's just going to take time uh and i understand that but the 2012s did really well the one thing that we spoke about during halftime that we made a little bit of a change was when we switched the ball from one defender to goalie to the other defender That defender should have space, they should be scanning before, and they should take a positive big first touch into that space. What was happening a lot in the first half was when the defender was receiving the ball, they would turn into the space, they would take a touch into the space, but it would be stuck in their feet. So we want to beat that first line of pressure, which is the forward because we're playing 7v7, 2-3-1. We want to take that touch forward, a big touch, so that not only do we beat that first line of pressure, but we also attract the center mid and the winger, right? With a big touch, they think, oh, that's a pressing trigger, right? Usually, um, miscontrol, a bad first touch, that's a passing trigger, a pressing trigger, sorry. So, If we take a big touch, if we have that space, that's going to attract. And then based on the center mid being attracted and the uh, winger being attracted, now we can play in behind because they're coming at us. So the center mid can shift and go behind uh, and receive that ball or even the winger. So I thought we did in the second half a really good job. We also got a lot more goals in the second half. Um, But yeah, I thought the 2012s did really well uh, with the 2012. 13s the issue was not being able to get the ball to the center mids uh sorry not the center mids the midfield line or 2011s we were missing two players uh and when you're playing 6v6 and you're missing two players and uh then we bring up 2012s to play up to fill that gap 
on top of that, the other team was just huge. Uh, they were big, strong, fast. Uh, they were twice the size of one of our 2012s, so uh, that was always going to be a challenge. In the second half, we had one of them. Uh, he came late, so he came like a half late. And then in the second half, things kind of balanced out a little bit. Our 2010s, uh, they fought really hard. Um, we just, again, like our 2013s and our 2011s, there's a lot of new players. So to play the way that we want to play is just going to take a lot of time. But overall... I thought a decent weekend, um, and yeah, that, that, that was our weekend. I really wanted to talk about Ontario soccer, um, and I think, and I want to talk about it because I think a lot of coaches can relate around the world. So while I am talking about something that's happening in Ontario, I think a lot of you um, can relate to it within your own federation. I'll give you a little bit of background within the soccer culture here and uh the way that in the past the leagues have worked so when i was growing up there were really two types of leagues there was the academy league and then there was ontario soccer who would produce the league for the clubs and i played in both i saw both um but essentially the academy route was a lot more professional professionally done um they had their own set of rules and the club was more, uh, you know, about just getting players out and playing. So that was a really big distinction growing up. And I actually liked the Ontario side better when I was growing up. There was a really simple playing model, which was you start at house league. Uh, and then if you get scouted by your club, you go into what was called all-star from there really started a pyramid where based on your team's performance, you're able to go up and down in a promotion relegation type environment. So that was really good because you could always just kind of go up if your team was good enough. When I started my academy, there were, there were then three leagues. So there was Ontario soccer, the academy league was still there. And then there was another league which was seen as kind of like a rogue league. Uh, these rogue leagues are, I call them rogue league because they're not affiliated with the federation. So anything that's not really federation approved, so that's Canada soccer, is a rogue league. And the reason I didn't consider uh, the academy as part of that is just because of the way it was done. And it was there for so long that it was basically considered mainstream at that point. So... There was another uh, Rogue League, and it was called CAF. When I started my academy, we played in the Rogue League CAF. We didn't have the financials. We didn't have the number of players to get into uh, the academy league. At a certain point, Ontario Soccer reached out to all the academies that were out there and was basically like, hey, we want to just bring everyone together. And they did that. So the academy league folded. And it was just Ontario soccer and then the Rogue League, uh, which was CAF, as I mentioned before. And that's kind of been the landscape for a very long time. Now, there are some other leagues here, but they're very community-based. So we have uh, La Liga, which I think exists pretty much everywhere around the world now, uh, which is a Spanish league. So they're affiliated with La Liga 
in some sort of capacity. Um, but that's really for a specific community, um, the Spanish community here. You don't really get a lot of teams that go in there. Now, Ontario soccer, uh, and this is where I think a lot of coaches can relate, really just messed everything up for the academies. At least I feel that way. And the reason they did that was because they put in a lot of barriers to entry in the league. So as I mentioned, when I was growing up, if you were a team and you were an all-star, you could make it all the way up to provincials if you were good enough. And all you would have to do is every year you would just have to win the league and then you'd get promoted and that was it. There was no other prerequisite. If you were good enough, you would go. Ontario soccer has stopped that completely. And this is something that's happening all over the world. You are, your federation is essentially saying, in order to play in the top league, you have to have certain amounts of criterias that would make you eligible to play, whether that's number of players, whether it's um, playing on turf, uh, so the facility that you're playing in, whether it's the number of days, the number of coaches uh, that have a specific license, that's a big one. So they're putting in a lot of barriers to entry for smaller academies. And what's happening is people are getting frustrated. They're getting frustrated that their good teams can't really get scouted. And the only way to get scouted would be for their best players to leave and go and play for bigger clubs. Uh, and that's not how business works. You don't want your customers leaving to go to competitors. That's not, that's not really good. <laughs> so <clears throat> this has been the ongoing issue and there's a big change coming. Ontario soccer is just not listening. Every two years, there's new licenses that coaches have to get they revamp everything now they're merging with CONCACAF or something and have this license that's approved by con just continuously every two years when i when i started um the c license was the basic license now you got to do community courses before c license so for a lot of coaches it's a lot of money just to get licensed and people are sick of it and people are sick of having a really good team and not really being able to play at a high level. So what we're starting to see is more rogue leagues. And these leagues, in my opinion, are going to be a lot more popular than they were before because the Federation is just not listening. And this is the way capitalism works. If you got a product and it's not good, people are just not going to buy and I'm excited for it. I'm really excited for it, you know, not because, you know, that's something that necessarily we're looking into, might be, but it's really going to start to make Ontario soccer think. And if it doesn't, the academies are out. The academies are gone and essentially the leagues are going to suffer. So in the next two, three years, this is going to be something that's interesting. That's, that's happening. Um, and whoever has the best product out there and offers the most enticing pitch to the academies, they're the ones that are going to be successful. 
we have, I, I mean, within the past couple of months alone, I've gotten emails of three new leagues that are starting that I know of. Three? Yeah, something like that. Um, so I'm really excited to see what's going to happen. Um, for us personally, what are we going to do? Uh, well, I mean, we're going to stick around, I think, um, with Ontario soccer, at least for a bit, see what's going on. Um, you know, test the waters a little and, and, and see how things happen. Now, one of the things that Ontario soccer says is that you cannot play against or have any affiliation with any other league. So again, they're trying to control and that's just not going to work. So I'm excited to see um, what's going to happen. But yeah, it's it's a really interesting time here in Ontario. Soccer is, I think, booming. Um, and Ontario soccer is not doing well. There was a lot of problems with Canada soccer almost going bankrupt. Um, there's a lot of so- uh, problems with the way that they treat the women's team. And that was all over the news. So uh, it's not really good to be a part of Ontario soccer and Canada soccer. It's not It's not what it used to be. So uh, excited to see where this goes. Um, but just a little background. And, and I know a lot. most of the listeners aren't Ontario or Canada-based. And the reason I talk about this is because I think that it's the same everywhere. I mean, I know in the States, there are so many rogue leagues. There, there are so many. There is federation leagues and then there are rogue leagues. So the reason I tell you this is because just because the federation does one thing, it doesn't mean it's the best thing for your players, right? If you're a small academy and you want to get noticed and you want to get your players to the highest level, you're probably not going to want to play where the federation does because you don't want to go into the DA and I mean I don't I don't know the US landscape but you're probably going to want to go into one of the rogue leagues that have much better potential to get your players seen by scouts because that's usually the selling point in a rogue league it's can I uh, offer a way for the smaller clubs to get scouted that's really for me the big thing. So um, I know the uh, in the U.S. there is a Junior Premier League. That's the one that's coming to Canada as well. So uh, that uh, I don't know where it is in the U.S., but um, it's really interesting. Uh, that's one of the ones that are coming here. There's another one that's being started, I think, by some of the old uh, academies that were part of the uh, academy league back then. So see what happens but uh yeah um some interesting things that i think you should start some you should start asking asking your technical director asking the owner asking the board though ask the question it's okay it's okay to not want to be a part of the federation um just because they're associated with fifa uh, i mean fifa come on fifa that's what we're basing it out of uh who is very corrupt as we all know and uh, does things that are not okay. So, you know, it is what it is, but excited, excited for the summer, uh, excited to see what will happen. So enough of that, let's get into today's topic. So today we're talking about position games, but before that, let's just think of positions and what they are. Now, mostly 
positions, what they do is they give us an organization, right? They give our players and allow them to understand the organization of the game. And I think one of the things that we talk about a lot, at least I do, in advantage is numerical superiority, right? So there, there's numerical superiority, and this is in the Barcelona methodology, but there's also positional superiority. And positional superiority is different than numerical superiority. And I think it's really important to understand this. Positional superiority is the ability to be in a better position than the other team versus numerical superiority, which is the ability to have more numbers in a certain area than the other team. Now, you can have numerical superiority and positional superiority both at the same time. So I think it's really interesting that we think of position as a way to get superiority as well. And we can bring that into the rondos uh, and we'll get into all that together. But when we think of positional superiority, here's what that would mean. If we have our team who is in possession and everyone, so let's play with a 2-3-1 and we would have our two defenders in the half space. We have our two wingers in the wide space. We have our center mid in the center space and we have our forward in the center space. Ball goes to the left and to our defender from the goalkeeper who is in the half space. At that point, to get numerical superiority, we could have both the center mid and the forward shift. So the forward can shift into the half space and the, uh, the center mid can come down and support a little bit and in to the edge of the center space. And now we've created numerical superiority. But if the other team, if positionally we can get their defender to leave our forward and come up, not only could we have position numerical superiority if we have more numbers in that area, but we could also have positional superiority with our forward now not being marked. And we can use this concept for every position. If we can create a situation where a player is not being marked, then they not only have numerical superiority, but they have positional superiority. And I think that's a really interesting point. So last week we spoke a lot about rondos. It was all about rondos. And this week it's positional game. So what's really the big difference between them? Well, just like the name implies, in positional games, we talk about players in specific positions. So a rondo doesn't necessarily have positions in them. In fact, it shouldn't. It's a lot more about just keeping possession, understanding how to move the ball within possession. So it's a lot more technical from that point of view. Positional games bring in some tactical component, and we can talk about tactics usually by adding middle players as neutrals. So as soon as that happens, it becomes a lot more tactical. So if we think of a rondo, of you know x amount of players on the outside and then defenders in the middle trying to win the ball within the positional game 
there are players in the middle that now take up positions such as center midfield, uh, center defense, and forwards. And what you have then is usually three different half spaces at least. So you'd have players either in the wide space or the half space, then you'd have players in the center space, and then you'd have players again in the half space or wide space. So if we do a 4v1, for example, that's a rondo. But if we do a 4v2 plus 1, that now becomes a positional game because now we can look at those three players if we make, for example, one player in the south side, two players east-west, one player in the north side, and then that one player in the middle. So the north and south players could be the defenders, the forwards, the center defender, center forward, and then the player in the middle, that can be the uh, center mid. Now, the introduction of neutral players is really important in this because that player gives us both numerical and positional advantages throughout the game. And what we have to try and get those players to understand is that they're vital to the success of keeping possession. So what are neutral players? Neutral players are players that are in the playing area that do not switch from possession, sorry, from attack to defense. Those are players that are always on attack. They're always part of the possession part of the game. So if we take a 4v2 rondo and we want to make it a positional game, we can change it and we can do a 2v2 plus 3. So what does that look like? A 2v2 plus 3 would look like the East and West players will be playing 2v2. Okay, so let's say let's do three different colors. Let's do orange. Okay, so if we have orange, we have orange on attack. They're east and west. And then we have black east and west covering those players. So that becomes a 2v2. And then on the green team would be the neutral players. So that would be the player on the south side. That would be the player on the north side. And that would be a player in the middle. Now, the green team always is on offense. So whenever the orange or the black, it doesn't matter who has it. The green team is always keeping possession of the ball. So they're always there to help. And that's what the neutral player does. Now, the positional game adds a completely different element that the Rondo game does not. And I'm sure a lot of coaches do this. They just call it the wrong thing. And I think language is really important to have names for different things so that we as coaches can understand what the point and what the goal of the session is. If I'm doing a Rondo, the goal of what I'm getting out of that specific activity is going to be different than what I'm doing with a positional game or even a situational game. So to be able to have that terminology and talk about it is very, very important. So the layer that we add by putting in a positional aspect of it is asking the players now to understand their role in the game. Now, these are concepts that are carried over from the Rondo. So while we introduce things like attract, relieve passes, in the rondos, we that's something that we've really started to do this week, which is have two different squares in our rondo and talk about the two different types of passes, short passes, they attract, and then long passes, a long pass relieves pressure. So we introduce these concepts in the rondo, and then we ask them to do it while they're in their position, right? So while we do a 3v1 uh, 
in one box with a player in another box and asking the relieve pass to uh, then transition, we can then change that by adding a center mid. So now we have four players, uh, one in the bottom, and, and we have that kind of diamond shape, which is defense wingers uh, forward, uh, center mid. Now we can use that and say, okay, can we now use short passes to attract in our positions before we get it to the forward who's in a different box, right? Or who is still in the same box, just long. So what we did a lot of this week with our older players is we did a lot of 4v4 plus 3. And the concept that I really wanted to get into the players' minds in positional games was how important it was for the center players in the center space to shift over to the strong side, which is the side with the ball, to help out. And that gave us numerical superiority and a little bit of positional superiority as well. And that was really important. That was one of the things that the 2013s really struggled with was our center mid last week, not this past week, just didn't really get involved enough. And as soon as we did this, this weekend, completely different. He was so involved in the game. He was one of the better players. And we were just able to keep it more in the back. Now we got to work on our wingers. But we're building layer, layer, and layer, and layer. Now, the question is, using this methodology, how can I now work on the wingers? Because now the center mid gets it. Well, the easy answer is I have to decrease the numerical superiority. So if we look at our training methodology and how we teach players, it's can we first start with no pressure? Then can we add a layer of um, a little bit of pressure, right? And then can we go into full pressure? So if we think about the 4v4 plus 3 in that moment, we can think about having the center mid no pressure because there's no one in the, in the center, right? So they don't have pressure. And then you can add layers of little bit of pressure by forcing and introducing uh, when we don't have the ball, talking about transition as when the four gets small and the four get big, right? So when they're small, that creates a limited pressure. So now what we want to do is we want to add a layer since we now understand that our center mid has understood what we spoke about and getting involved. And then what we do is we simply reduce numerical superiority by adding a center mid. So we could go a 5v5 plus 2, or we could reduce that and we could actually go a 3v3 plus 2, right? And that 3v3 or the 5v5 is the players in that center space, sorry, in the wide space and half space, plus we now have a 1v1 in the middle. So if we think about the 3v3 plus 2, it would be one defender and then 3v3 winger, center mid winger, and then the the other neutral in the uh, 3v3 plus 2 is at the top, okay? So that alone can work on the ability of the wingers now. They're forced to 
be a lot more attentive in getting open and creating space for themselves. Now, I'm a very logical person, so whenever I hear about new methodologies, I always think about, do they logically make sense? And this really, really makes sense to me. It's very logical if you think about the trajectory of player development. First, we teach a player how to keep possession, right? First, we teach them passing, receiving. We talk about all the technique needed to be successful on the ball. Then from there, we get into positions. And then we teach them everything that they need to be successful in all the positions. And then from there, we go into situational games, which I'll talk about next week. And those are different situations on the field. So we can have them in the uh, front third, middle third, or in the attacking third, right? So it really makes a lot of sense logically. And that's a huge distinction as well between the Rondo and the uh, positional game. Because right now, this isn't a situational game. So the idea here isn't directional necessarily, but it's more about repetition and understanding how movement works within your position. So it's very possession oriented, whereas in situational games, as we'll find out next week, it's not as dependent on it. So how can you come up with a really good positional game? The answer is that you first have to start out and think about the position that you want to focus on. What position, where am I struggling in the game? Are my wingers struggling getting the ball? Is my center mid? Is my defense struggling? And if that's the case, then add that player as the most important part of the positional game and do it as a neutral situation, right? So or create more numerical superiority in that situation. So if we're working on the defense, can I make sure that I have two in the back, right? So instead of having that 3v3 plus two, I would do a 3v3 plus four because now, for example, the center mids are all covered 1v1, but my two defenders, they don't have any pressure on them, right? And that's how we always start, no pressure. And then after that, then we can introduce limited pressure by increasing, sorry, by decreasing the numerical superiority. So what that could look like is again a 4v4 plus 3, but we just kind of flip it. So you have the two defenders against two defenders, and then all the center mids are neutral, and then two defenders against two defenders. So we just kind of flip the orientation of what it looks like and really focus on talking about these are defenders, and then the wingers are open. So can we use the wingers a lot more? And then can we support fine passing lanes, right? And then we go into full pressure, and that would look like maybe, again, a 5v5 plus 2 type thing where the wingers are the ones that are completely open, right? So we can use this positional game idea to really focus, plus, sorry, the understanding of how players learn to really get players to a very high level. Now, this should take months, right, to go from rondo to positional to situational, but we can do it in such a way that we build it while still in every session doing rondo, positional game, and then situational game. So I don't want to leave you hanging. 
So let me tell you how to start, right? Because theory is one thing, but if it has no uh, application, then there's really no point. Uh, and, and it really frustrates me. Uh, a lot, some of the podcasts that I listen to, it's very theoretical without any um, just real world example. So let me give you Rondo to what I would do for a positional game. So basic Rondo, I would start with a 4v1. That, to me, is the easiest Rondo. I would never start with a 4v0 because there are ways to get the player in the middle to have less pressure, right? So either the the player start to give less pressure. So that player could be hopping on one leg, could be doing whatever. So 4v1, we start. From there, we can get into once that's successful then we can build into something new that i've started doing which is two squares so you can then start to have a 3v1 in one square with one player at a different square waiting for um a relieve pass and once they have that two players transition into that so that's a 4v1 then you can get that to a higher level by going 4v2 and then again changing that to two square uh 3v2 plus one there and i would start the positional game by simply adding into one square a center mid and then doing that 2v2 plus three that would be the very basic in my opinion positional game that would be really great we could also then do uh, sorry, then we ramp that up. We could do a 3v3 plus 2. And we can also do it in bigger numbers, which is a 4v4 plus 3 or a 5v5 plus 2. And that's really where I would take it. Um, and, and that would be kind of the way that I would start from beginning to hard. Now, I do want to mention a note here because I think it's really, really important. I think a lot of coaches get into a trap where they find rondos and then it's like oh my goodness our our team is playing better we're we're doing great things let's just keep doing it and, and that's not all there is it's not just rondos the 1v1 is critical so we have one day 1v1 and then two day rondos and positional games and situational games so for us, the 1v1 cannot, cannot be overlooked to the point where now we're actually focusing on 1v1 defending. And even in the Rondo positional situation sessions that we have, we still do 1v1 defending first because it's so important. So just because we now have this concept that's going to change the way your team plays that's not everything. So I do want to make that clear. And for us, the 1v1 is very important. It's probably just as important as our Rondo positional situational sessions. But our players have gone to such a high level of 1v1s that we can afford to do this. Now with our younger kids, it's a little bit different. There's a lot more 1v1s. There's a lot more 1v1 defending, learning deceptive dribbling moves. But but there's a certain point where they're not playing 5v5 anymore and it's not about one player. 
you know um soccer is not just a one player game so it's very important to focus on these things so a lot of our younger players are focusing on it but as we get into the u11 age group there's a little bit of that transition and then by the time they're 13 14 then it's a lot more rondo situation position type games but again, that doesn't mean that we stop the 1v1. It never does. We never stop the 1v1. Um, and that's actually a really big focus for U14s because a lot of them are new to our academy. So there's a big focus on that even at the older age group. So don't stop the 1v1s just because your teams are now great passers and can move the ball and can switch the ball and can reset and, and keep possession. And your stats are now... 60% possession in every game, which you can see on the VO, um, which is fantastic, the possession stats. So just don't don't stop. Don't stop. Because at the end of the day, first touch, all that, you know, passing, it's great. But player development is also about the individual. And that's very important. So don't stop that. This weekend is a complete shift. So last week we had all of our older teams play 11s, 12s, 13s, 14s. Now we have our 9, 10, 11, and 13s. So um, it's going to be a completely different weekend and I'm excited for it. I really, really love our U10s. They are doing some incredible things. They're playing some incredible soccer. Um, and what I love about it is that's usually for me where th i see things coming together so what do i mean by that up to about u10 sorry up to u9 are players to really amazing things 1v1 they will destroy teams they'll dribble through four or five players and score and it's incredible they'll do maradona turn scissors croifs everything but when they get to that u10 that's really when the rondos and the positional games come together. And it's a combination of those two things. And that's really great. So usually I find that around U10, things are starting to come together. <clears throat> and as we're seeing with the U12s, things are great. Um, now we do always have new players in, so they're never going to be perfect um, because those players haven't had the training uh, that a lot of them have. But with a majority of the team that we've had with their U10s have been with us since they were U8s. This team is going to be, in my opinion, just as good as the U12s as they get older. So super excited for that. The U9s, um, they are they're on a spree. They are on a, you know, I'm going to destroy them with a Maradona. I'm going to destroy them with this. Like they just go for it. Um, so it's that difficulty of trying to balance that 1v1, not trying to take it away, but also really emphasizing, okay, we really want to keep it though. Like we really want to keep the ball. It's okay to go backwards. It's fine. It's not that big of a deal, but we don't just go backwards for the sake of it. We go backwards because we want to get open and we want to attract them away. So there is a reason to go back and having them understand that, that it's not, it's not a bad thing, but the stuff that these kids are doing. Um, there was a goal two weeks ago, last time U9 plays. I mean, one of our players just against five of them just destroyed them. Now, if this was U13, different story, completely different story. You know, you don't, you don't take on five players um, at that age. Well, I mean, that would be the whole team. That would be pretty impressive. But 
Um, we want to get more of a team game. Now, there were four other players open in the box, but that didn't happen. Um, but he ended up scoring anyway. But it, those are the type of things that we don't want to overcoach, but we also want to suggest as well. So super excited for that U9, um, U10, like I mentioned, U11s. Uh, we're going to see because the defense is getting better. Um, the center mid's getting better. So now can we really work on those wingers uh, in the forward to be in the right position at the right time? So uh, that's going to be for the U11s. And then the U13s, uh, can we get everyone there? And when we do, we play well. And when we don't, we struggle. So uh, that's going to be the highlights of what we are looking for this weekend. So until then... Have a great weekend. Enjoy the journey. Enjoy the moments, but most importantly, enjoy the game.